please stay tuned to the end of this program or see the show notes for important information regarding today's speakers and the content of this podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Allergy Talk, a roundup of the latest in the field of allergy and immunology by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. For today's episode, we will be reviewing three articles from the July-August 2021 issue of Allergy Watch, a bi-monthly publication which provides research summaries to college members from the major journals in allergy and immunology. Also, make sure you check out our ACAAI community on Doc Matter, where we will make an article post where we can continue discussion about this article. Well, again, my name is Jerry Lee. I'm one of the co-hosts of Allergy Talk. I'm an associate professor of allergy immunology at Emory University, and I'm joined by my two co-hosts. First, Dr. Stan Feynman. Hi, everybody. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm an allergist in practice here in Atlanta, uh, Atlanta Allergy. I'm a past president of the college and uh, currently the editor-in-chief of Allergy Watch. And the third co-host is Dr. Marin Curavilla. Hi, everyone. Thank you for having me again on the show, Jerry. And I am an assistant professor of allergy and immunology at Emory University in Atlanta. Well, we have three really interesting articles to go over today. So let's just get started. First, Stan, I'm really glad that you're telling us more about these biologics. We just can't get enough about learning how to manage our asthma patients. Well, as a matter of fact, this is an article that John Oppenheimer reviewed for Allergy Watch, the July-August issue. And the the article uh, comes from the Journal of Allergy, Clinical Immunology and Practice, the March 2021 issue, and it's titled, Dupilumab Improves Asthma Control and Lung Function in Patients with Insufficient Outcome During Previous Antibody Therapy. And it's from Germany. And as far as I can tell, it's not sponsored by a pharmaceutical, but what they did is what basically we all know is that patients who have severe TH2 high asthma anti-IgE or an anti-interleukin IL-5 biologic therapies have been shown to improve clinical outcomes in their asthmatic patients, but some patients may not achieve optimal treatment response to these agents. And the newer anti-IL-4 receptor antibody, the dupilumab, was evaluated in this study for use in patients who had an insufficient response to a previous treatment with biologics. So what they did is they had 38 patients who had severe asthma who had been treated. So 32 of them were treated with anti-IL-5 or anti-IL-5 or the receptor therapy, either benrolizumab, mepolizumab, or reslizumab. And then there were six patients who had received anti-IgE, that's the omelizumab treatment. And they were switched because they felt that they did not have an adequate response. And then after three to six months on the dupilumab, the treatment response were assessed. And the main criteria that they were looking for was either an increase in asthma control test score of three or more, or a 50% reduction in oral steroid use, or FEV1 improvement greater than or equal to 150 milliliters. And they classify the patients as either responding to the dupilumab or not responding to it based on, you know, one of those three criteria. 
So interestingly, there was a mean for overall cohort. Let's just look at the overall cohort first. The ACT score increased a mean of 2.9 points with significant reductions in exacerbations and the number of oral corticosteroid-dependent patients from 15 to 12. There was also a mean uh, 305 milliliter increase in FEV1 and a 30 part per billion decrease in the median exhaled nitric oxide, which we're going to talk about in just a minute. So with this, with a 0.17 grams per liter increase in eosinophil count, so the eosinophil count went up somewhat, patients who had exhaled nitric oxide of 25 parts per billion or greater during their previous biologic therapy had an even greater response to dupilumab, 23 of the 27, compared to those who had lower pheno levels in three of the eight in the responders versus non-responders. So among the things that I think is important, besides the fact that the pheno seemed to predict the response, was that interestingly, when you look at the clinical characteristics of the patients, 74% of these 38 patients had ENT problems, comorbidities, and almost half of them had nasal polyposis. So 18 of the 38 patients also had nasal polyposis. So you kind of wonder if that may be a contributing factor here in terms of, you know, knowing our, we've already talked previously about dupilumab with nasal polyposis, but the authors were suggesting that many patients in the cohort had a mixed phenotype at baseline and the presence of allergens as well as eosinophilia. And they felt that dupilumab may have what they called pleiotropic effects on Th2 inflammation acting on the eosinophil and also reducing IgE response as well as uh, pheno. So they felt that maybe that was one of the reasons, but the study did demonstrate it. And one of the other problems with the study was that it was retrospective. So it was a retrospective design. It was not prospective. So they looked at patients who had already been treated, you know, already been switched. But the fact that they found these changes uh, with increases in lung function, reduction in uh, residual volume, improvement in FEV1, also a change in the asthma control score, and even the reduction in oral steroid dose, I think is important. And when you look at Dr. Oppenheimer's comment, he said that uh, this retrospective study indicates there may be hope in switching to a different class of biologic when the first one fails. So Stan, I think sort of very similar data has been reproduced in other real-world cohorts. And there are several that come to mind. One of them was published last year out of a group in Canada, sort of demonstrating that one of the risk factors for non-responsiveness to mepolizumab and resolizumab was in fact the presence of nasal polyps. And there were two others, one from Brigham, and another from Scripps that was published very recently in Jackie in Practice. And both of these looked at cohorts of AERD patients. And essentially what they found was that patients who were initially on anti-IL-5 therapies and then subsequently switched to dupilumab tended to have better outcomes with the caveat that both of these, again, were retrospective trials with their own sort of inherent limitations. In the study out of Brigham, the only distinguishing feature between the non-responders to anti-IL-5 agents who subsequently did better on dupilumab 
was the presence of an elevated serum IgE, and they didn't necessarily make any mention of the pheno. But the pheno, again, we don't routinely monitor pheno in patients on anti-IL-5 therapy in the sense that it's long been known to be dissociated from responsiveness or non-responsiveness. We published a small study in the annals a few years ago, looking at a small cohort of about 50 patients, and this is been reproduced subsequently, sort of just demonstrating that pheno doesn't predict responsiveness and pheno doesn't necessarily change during therapy, independent of clinical improvement. But that's interesting. You know, that latest 2020 asthma guideline has sort of now proposed, obviously not in isolation, but amongst clinical characteristics that pheno is in our toolbox to monitor patients. So that's where we struggle with. I would say that obviously we're not going to hang our hat on it, but I'm just curious, Stan, Merritt, how are we using pheno to monitor? You know, like we're not like talking about like, is this eosinophilic or not? We're talking like monitoring over time. Is this a useful thing like on top of clinical or is it just correlate together? I'm just curious what your thoughts are. It's a really great point, Jerry. And in fact, like there was actually another paper in Jackie in practice published recently of patients who were on anti-IL-5 agents. And they looked at a cohort of more than 200 patients actually. And the clinical efficacy of both mepolizumab and benrolizumab was completely independent of the baseline phenol levels, even very high levels. And so it's hard for me though, to sort of notice that incongruity between clinical response parameters, as well as this pheno number that's essentially unchanged. But that's just sort of what the data, even going back to the DREAM study, right? That there's equivalent effectiveness and the pheno doesn't change over time. So that's what I sort of try to tell myself when I'm monitoring these patients. Stan, do you find it helpful? Uh, Well, it may not be that helpful for monitoring the biologics, but I find it still helpful for the patients who are just on inhaled steroids. So, and that's been shown before as well. And I tend to use it. So when I see an elevation in the pheno, then I can go back to the patient and say, are you really using your inhaled steroid every day or something like that? Or maybe that's a reason to consider even starting to use it on a daily basis if the patient's not on it. So I kind of still use it. Maybe I'm an older school person using it that way, but I I haven't really used it for monitoring our biologics, but I do for the, the persistent asthmatics. Well, I'm just going to throw it out there. These are retrospective studies and not clinical research studies. Are they just saying that dupilumab is better for monotherapy? I'm, I'm just, <laughs> I, again, that's, I didn't mean to be provocative, but like, again, maybe the rise in, you know, in those patients and being responders is that they're just not taking their inhaler and then they're just taking the biologic by itself. Again, there's so many things that influence that number that it's just hard to wrap your head around it. And there's whole bazillion of reasons, I'm sure, why that could be occurring. But we see patients who are on dupilumab, their EOs tend to sometimes will go up. I mean, it, it does vary, uh, although it obviously with the IL-5s, they always go down. All right. Well, uh, again, I think we are still learning more about these biologics. So I'm glad, Merritt, you're talking about a different biologic and maybe a new reason to use it. That's right. So I'm talking about the oldest biologic, omalizumab. And this was a paper that was published in Jackie in practice this year and also reviewed in Allergy Watch by John Oppenheimer. And it looked at the relationship between omalizumab and lung function, but a different angle as opposed to just whether there was a straightforward improvement in FEV1, which we all know does increase by a little bit. But rather, it actually looked at whether omalizumab 
could prevent the loss of lung function over time, which is characteristic of patients with frequent exacerbations. And we've long known that there is this relationship that's almost direct between the number of exacerbations in people with type 2 asthma and a decline in their lung function. And repeated exacerbations may be associated with an accelerated loss of lung function. It's even been proposed that these exacerbations can result in structural alterations in the lung, which is what's responsible for permanently worsening the outflow. So this post-hoc analysis looked at whether omalizumab protected against this decline in lung function in more than 500 children and more than 1,000 adolescents and adults when compared with placebo, and they used data from three previously published randomized studies and looked at lung function in relation to treatment, as well as exacerbations during the treatment phase in patients with moderate to severe persistent allergic asthma, and as expected across all age groups, patients who were treated with omalizumab did have improvement in lung function as compared with patients treated with placebo by about 80 to 100 cc's consistent with previous studies. So they looked at lots and lots of different things. And really what stood out to me was their findings in the pediatric population as opposed to the adolescent and adult study populations. And the main thing was that Benefits with omalizumab in pediatric patients were only seen in patients with frequent exacerbations, but in adolescents and adults, these benefits in terms of lung function were seen in both exacerbators as well as the population they refer to as non-exacerbators. And this sort of reminiscent to me for off the previous PRO study that the authors referenced, looking at inner-city asthmatics aged between 6 to 17 with a history of exacerbations and those frequent exacerbators had greater overall benefit from omalizumab therapy than children without exacerbations. And in the same PRO study, omalizumab was shown to decrease the duration and frequency of rhinovirus infections. And the authors theorized that the prevention of infection was possibly another mechanism through which omalizumab works to prevent this lung function decline in patients with asthma. And the reason why this sort of stood out to me out of all the other findings they noted in this paper was that I'm sure both of you have seen this a lot, this phenotype of inner city asthmatics. They looked at lots of different sort of endpoints, but what really stood out to me were their findings in the pediatric population. In particular, the benefits with omalizumab were seen only in exacerbators in the pediatric population but among both exacerbators as well as non-exacerbators in adolescents and adults. And this is sort of reminiscent as the authors referenced to the inner city pro study that was published several years ago of asthmatics aged six to 17 years. And in this study, those with a history of exacerbations received greater benefit from omalizumab as compared with children who did not have recent exacerbations. Omalizumab in the PRO study was shown to decrease the duration as well as the severity of rhinovirus infections, and the authors theorized that maybe the prevention of severe infection was another mechanism through which omalizumab prevented lung function decline in pediatric asthmatics. And the reason I found this interesting is because, and I'm sure both of you have also seen this particular phenotype of inner city asthma frequently, wherein Children, due to undertreatment and underdiagnosis of severe asthma, have reduced adolescent-related growth in their FEV1, and by the time they reach adulthood, have a low maximal FEV1, 
And I see them in their 20s and 30s where they have pretty significant advanced and chronic airflow obstruction that is often irreversible. And this was interesting because it suggested that maybe using omalizumab for the purposes of preventing this lung function decline may be helpful in pediatric patients to prevent the development of irreversible airway obstruction. And the bottom line was, as John Oppenheimer stated, was that omalizumab may give us some protection against lung function decline, not only among children, but also among adolescents and adults, especially in patients who experience frequent asthma exacerbations while on therapy. So just to clarify, just so I, I'm understanding the article, you know, I, it was always drilled into me that omalizumab is effective for exacerbations, but doesn't modify FEV1 or lung function. But I guess this is a little bit different. You're saying that we're not improving lung function, but we're keeping the lung function that they have. Exactly. So it was sort of a different angle. So there was a very mild, perhaps even negligible improvement in FEV1 that was noted across the different pediatric as well as adolescent and adult populations. But the purpose of the study was not necessarily to look for improvement in lung function, but rather to make sure that the severe asthmatics did not lose their lung function over time. Hmm. Okay. I see the difference now then. You know, that's an interesting point. And I mean, obviously that's the nirvana we all try to have for our asthma patients because we do know that over time when they're not controlled, they do tend to have a, a, a loss of lung function that sometimes may not even come back. I, I was taught that it was from steroids. Steroids were the, the ultimate medication that would prevent this from happening. So uh, it looks like maybe other things, maybe this omalizumab can do it as well, or maybe it's just that the patients are under better control. Right. So it could be multiple different factors. So as you said, it's probably just the direct anti-IgE and thereby anti-inflammatory effect. As they suggested in this paper, it may also be due to the prevention of lung function decline in the setting of a rhinovirus infection and related viral inflammation. So it could be several different things that are contributing, but it's interesting that it was just so prominent in pediatric exacerbators. Just as a side note, inspired by this article, I just refreshed my memory about allergy and immunotherapy and lung function. And apparently (sighs) it's completely inconsistent. Like there's complete variability on the effects of maintaining lung function on allergy and immunotherapy. But Maybe I shouldn't be thinking of them in the same league. You know, I'm, I'm thinking very dense about inhalant allergy and IgE and how we're just right. trying to mind them. But maybe actually, maybe I shouldn't be trying to compare the two. I mean, maybe Zolaire's direct effect on mast cells is unique, I guess. I'm just hand-waving <laughs> there, I guess. Well, let's round off the article with something a little bit different. I don't know. Anyone who's listened to this podcast probably realizes I pick a lot of food allergy articles. <laughs> I, I think, you know, that's Brian Vickery's influence on me. Anyways, <laughs> it's just, you know, in my nature. Okay. So this was a very interesting study about something that comes up a lot. And that is patients worried about airborne exposure to peanut. And so this was a very interesting article that came out of Sweden that's called Peanuts in the Air clinical and experimental studies. And really, they just want to put to bed the whole concern about airborne exposure to peanut and the risk of severe allergic reactions. And they have this very interesting statistic that I didn't know. 
there's a study from 2009 that said 48.6% of the self-reported allergic reactions to peanuts and tree nuts on commercial flights were reported to be inhalation triggered. Almost half of them, they say, are inhalation triggered. So like this is definitely comes up a lot on flights and gives a lot of anxiety and concern to patients. And I, and we all have patients who come to us and say that they had a inhalational trigger due to peanut. And so they investigated this question two different ways. First way is they found children who either had a history of allergic reaction to peanut or just had a positive test to peanut, but never eaten it before. And they actually did airborne peanut challenges to either roasted salted nuts or dry roasted peanuts. Second thing, they constructed this sort of container that contained nuts in it. And they had this filter device that collected airborne peanut at different distances. You know, like one was like right on top of the container. And then they sort of go like, you know, 0.5 meters, one meter, one and a half meters, two meters, you know, so they, they were looking at different distances and they're disturbing the peanuts or shaking it up. They got this filter and this sort of air pump to like get some airflow and they collect the airborne peanut protein on the filter and they do an ELISA to detect for peanut, right? And so, you know, with these airborne challenges and obviously direct ELISAs to detect peanut protein, they really want to know what is the clinical or just the actual quantity of exposure through the airborne route. So let's start with the challenges, all right? So when they challenged the children, none of the children had a severe reaction, but there were two patients who had some mild symptoms. One had a history of anaphylaxis after peanut, and he had rhinoconjunctivitis, right? Now, there was another one who never actually ate peanut before, but just had a history of reported reactions to airborne peanuts. And she had itching of the mouth and mild rhinoconjunctivitis, but none of them required medical treatment. And the other 82 children had zero signs or reported symptoms, like zero, right? Okay, so that's the challenges. Let's talk about the experimental setup. Okay, so they do like peanut sampling right above the container and at different distances. So if you're right by the container and you do an ELISA, the concentration of peanut maximally found was 166 nanograms per ml, all right? So let's put that into context. The EDO5, the eliciting dose of the lowest 5% of peanut allergic population, you know, sort of like what we think as part of the minimum safe threshold for 95% of peanut allergic patients is 1.5 milligrams, right? So again, the, the ELISA showed 166 nanograms per ml and the eliciting dose at the fifth percentile is 1.5 milligrams, right? So once you take the detector, you like 0.5 meters or longer away from the container, it just drops precipitously. It, the majority of the samples drop to like undetectable. So interestingly, we learned two things from the study. Number one, if you actually do a airborne challenge to allergic patients, 98% of them feel nothing. And then 
if they do feel something, it's going to be like rhinoconjunctivitis symptoms, right? No one had anaphylaxis. And, and these are patients with very significant IgE, history of anaphylaxis, whole nine yards. Number two, the actual detected amount of peanut is immensely low, and that's inside the container, right? So like if you even tried to do air sampling a, a decent distance away from the container, you detect nothing, right? So again, this is just sort of another way we can educate our patients with data. They even suggest that you could replicate this challenge on in the clinic, if you'd want it to, again, provide additional reassurance. I do know that there's actually cutaneous challenges as well, where people have directly placed peanut butter on the skin to, to show that an attack skin barrier protects you from anaphylaxis, right? It's a skin test. We have to break the skin, right? So if you attack skin, the mast cells are never going to see the, the protein. Again, I just think it's just something that comes up that it's really helpful to have something we can cite when we talk to our patients. I think you're right. I think patients do need to have data and to be able to support it with data is, is very important because, you know, I can't explain why uh, a patient on an airplane who smells somebody eating a peanut two rows away is going to cause a problem. I think that most of us have said that the biggest problem on the planes is peanut dust and pieces of peanut that is in the chair. And so I've always instructed my families to make sure they get on board and clean the area really well to make sure there's no residual peanuts there, because I think that's probably a bigger problem than just the smell. And this study obviously shows that the smell is really not a major factor. Right. No. And obviously, like, I feel like the smell can create that like aversion, mm. but not necessarily allergy, right? But as Stan said, I agree that that's something we've known for a long time, but it's nice to have this objective, really like nicely, elegantly done data. Yeah. So I'm not doubting the fact that no one likes to smell peanut if you know (laughs) if it's a life-threatening event. I'm not going to disagree that that's going to cause discomfort and anxiety, but we want to just reassure them it won't lead to anaphylaxis. You know, again, we want to let you know that the discomfort will be present, but it won't be dangerous. We're just trying to improve the quality of life of our patients and just make sure that they can you know, not avoid going on air travel and all these things, try to live the most full, uh, again, unrestricted life as possible. And and just do that advocacy. Absolutely. No, I mean, in fact, I had a a mom of a food allergic child tell me recently that her daycare has constructed a plexiglass chamber for her during mealtimes to prevent any sort of contact reactions or inhalational reactions. I just find it a little extremist. Well, you know, I think, you know, the thing is that everything has side effects, right? So that may improve your anxiety about a reaction, but the impact on the child, I mean, there's pretty interesting data about that sort of obvious attention placed on food allergy leads to bullying, you know, like it doesn't create an inclusive environment. And it's interesting, a lot of the major food allergy experts at national meetings are really against peanut-free schools and these peanut-free environments because of the possible impact on the child, Mm -hmm. not allergic reactions because the risk is low, but we're talking about the social aspects of food allergy, you know? So I think that that's just very insightful. And this is further evidence that these things intended to be helpful may not be necessary. And therefore you're only getting the harm. That's again, (laughs) potentially. So Anyways, great discussion. 
If you like what you're hearing, please rate this podcast on iTunes. I think we're at 38 reviews as the time of this recording. We want your feedback. If you we said something wrong, if you wanted to contribute something, please email us. Our email is allergytalk, one word, at acaai.org. So again, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. The ACAI is presenting this podcast for educational purposes only. It is not medical advice or intended to replace the judgment of a licensed physician. The college is not responsible for any claims related to the procedures, professionals, products, or methods discussed in the podcast, and it does not approve or endorse any products, professional services, or methods that may be referenced.